And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do no such thing. So David said to him, Stay here at once, one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst the servants. He did not go home. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Job and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of them in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle and instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king his account, this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he might ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper uh, millstone on him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, then say to him also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Job had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Can you go with me, please, to Psalm 32? I'm going to read it together, and this time I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version, so it might be slightly different to your translation. It says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you might be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule, 
without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for these two portions of scripture. I thank you, Lord, that you are teaching us by the inspiration of your spirit. And I pray this morning that you would come again and you would teach us. You would wash us. You would cleanse us through the transforming power of your word. I thank you, Lord, that you are leading us on a journey. We thank you, Lord, that you are guiding us step by step. And Lord, I just pray what I've prepared this morning that would come with a a lightness into our hearts, but at the same time, that it would pierce our hearts, Father. We don't want to remain the same. We, we want to be transformed to be more and more like Jesus. We want to thank you that your word is here to instruct us and liberate us and free us, that we might be those that become more and more like Jesus. So I simply trust you this morning for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you know that story very well of Bathsheba and David, and uh, Psalm 32 is actually the psalm that David wrote after he had been challenged by Nathan, the prophet, and who came to challenge him about the sin in his life, and that was his, his kind of confession after that time. And so the, the title of my message this morning is simply this, The Grace of Confession. The Grace of Confession. And I want to start with a question to you this morning, some very simple question. Why do we live our lives in the presence of others and for others rather than in living freely in the presence of God and for Him. And there's a f- famous philosopher, a guy called John Paul Sartre, and he, he illustrated what I'm trying to say in this way. He said, imagine that you approach a room and in this room you see a doorway And you see light shining through the keyhole of the door. And so you approach the door and you start to look through the door. And through the keyhole you see another room which is full of people and they're doing all sorts of things. And they're not aware that you are watching them. But you are watching them. And suddenly you become aware that there's somebody watching you. And suddenly guilt comes upon you because you are caught out that you are spying on these people through the keyhole. And since Adam and Eve fell, that's how we've lived our lives. We've lived our lives in the presence of other people for the approval of other people because there's an unbearable thing in our hearts and our lives because we want to try and control what people see of us and what people perceive of us. And I think people can feed us, we can feed each other with a sense of affirmation and a sense of approval, if you like, that should be found by being rooted in Christ. But we find approval and affirmation from other people rather than from Jesus. And if that becomes true, then when we come into God's presence, sometimes it becomes secondary, it becomes superficial. Because we, we are seeking for the approval of men and managing others' perspectives of our lives rather than seeking the approval of Christ and being rooted in His presence first and foremost. And so instead of coming into the presence of, of God with a, uh, a vulnerability in our hearts and an openness, we come into the presence of God with layers and masks and pretenses, and we come with our credentials, and we come with all these things, and they really true, they cover the true state of our hearts. 
which are, are, are des- in the desperate need of Christ and the desperate need of Him. And so Psalm 32 is kind of this confession that comes from David after he's been challenged by Nathan the prophet. And if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, which I won't do now, it, said, uh, it says of David that he was so trying to cover his sin that he actually grew to despise the commandments of God. And I think it's true for all of us, and certainly I've been finding this out in the last year of my own life, that perhaps the deepest and the most rooted thing in our lives is pride. And pride really is the root of all sin. It's really that we are desperately full of ourselves and our own importance. (laughs) Someone said, described it like this, that really our hearts, pride is having a heart that is insatiable as the grave for its own fulfillment. (laughs) And so sometimes our interactions with other people uh, try to satisfy these longings of our hearts. But ultimately, the longing of our heart is only fulfilled in Jesus in Christ. Murray Brett is a writer. He said this, Even though your heart may have settled a hatred of sin, your imagination might be so frequently and powerfully solicited by sin that your affection becomes secretly enticed and entangled. So on the one hand, we hate sin with all of our hearts and we, and we, we don't want any part of it. In another, in another way, we are, our hearts are all enmeshed and entangled with sin. So God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And it's interesting, he sends Nathan after a whole year. And that was, that's always amazes me about the story. That's after a year, Nathan comes to David. And David has been living his life like nothing had happened. Just carried on in the same way. As, as he'd always had, have done, lived his life, got up in the morning, did what kings do, Feast as king's feast, enjoyed his family, carried on like nothing had happened. And eventually Nathan comes to him and tells him this parable, this story, about a man who had many, many sheep, and he, had, he, had, he was very wealthy, and he took and he stole from a poor man the one ewe lamb that that man had. And David is indignant, and he's absolutely, uh, he, he, um, he says to Nathan, that man should die. He should be punished for what he's done. He still doesn't see the sin in his own life. He's still covering it up. And Nathan says, you are that man. You killed Uriah the Hittite by the hand of the, the army. And you have done exactly that thing. And then the sword goes through David's heart. And he sees. And the blindness is removed from him. And so he writes this amazing psalm. Uh, Verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's amazing, eh? I mean, David is a man after God's heart. And it always fascinates me that we speak so highly of David. And it's right that we speak highly of David. And yet, at the same time, he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. And yet, the grace of God covers our lives. Isn't that beautiful? That is the gospel. doesn't matter what you have been. It's what we are going to become in Christ that is of of importance. And he says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones waxed through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up. Any of you ever felt that sometimes the hand of God is heavy upon you? And they're dealing with things from the inside that are just like 
they are there and you're wrestling and the hand of God is upon you and He's challenging you and He's uprooting things and He's taking things out in order that Christ can be fully formed in us. Well, last year has been a bit of a year like that for me. I preached a message at the beginning of the year about out of Jeremiah that God wants to uproot and tear down in order to build. And uh, it's nice to preach that. <laughs> it's nice to preach it. And then God starts to do it in your own life and He starts to uproot things and tear down things. And you think, God, what is going on? And it's painful. And sometimes the roots go so deep, you don't even know how deep they go. And you feel like, why am I being ripped apart from the inside? And it's like, well, you said, God, tear down everything that's not of you, so you can build your kingdom inside of me by the grace of God. And he takes us at his word. And every little thing, and it's amazing to me as I've been just talking to different people in the life of the church, how many people are being challenged deeply in their lives about where their identity is. Where their security is. Is it in your job? Is it in the fact that you earn a certain amount of money? And now this, this credit crunch has come and all of a sudden we are challenged deeply about where our identity really, really is. Or is it in Christ? And God has been challenging many of us, all of us, in different ways in our lives to find our identity and to be rooted in Him and in nothing else. Man, how many of you have experienced that this year and it's been painful for you? I'll put both my hands up. If I could put my toes up, I would as well. <laughs> but God wants us to be rooted in His Son, in Jesus. So, it's the same as, uh, I wanted to read Genesis 3, but we don't have time. But before they sin, Adam and Eve, they never hid from God. And after they sin, the first thing they try and do is hide their shame. And in the same way, like David, they felt guilt and shame and defined pride, and that made them cover themselves. And I want to say, suggest to you this morning that we can all cover our sin because we want to control what other people see of our lives, and we want other people to think that we are nice and good and pleasant, and we don't want people to see what is really inside of us, which is desperately wicked and ugly. And I'm speaking to myself. Desperately wicked and ugly. And we still fight with our wives. I've regularly fought with my wife this year. And our children. Why? Because there's desperate stuff inside of us that needs to be dealt with by the power of the Spirit. And either we open our hearts and let God put the sword through that, or we try and cover it over so that other people, so we can live in the presence of others and they can say, well, hey, and actually a nice bloke. He's a nice man. Ed's a good bloke. No, we're all desperately wicked. We're all desperately wicked, and we all need a Savior desperately. So how do we hide? And I love the image of the fig leaf, because that's exactly what we do. We put fig leaves in our lives in strategic places, because we want people to see what we want them to see. And so how, what do we do? Well, what did Adam do? He shifted blame. The first thing he did was shifted blame. He said, it ain't me, God. It was the woman that you gave me. She made me sin. It was her fault. So I had to ask myself this year, and I trust these, some of these things might resonate with you. In what ways do I shift blame in my life? Perhaps when there's 
a situation I don't want to confront or I'm, there's a relationship that's tense or whatever. How do I shift blame? Do I make other people seem more unrighteous than I am? But we're, we're really all sinners saved by grace, aren't we? But it's, if you make yourself look righteous, someone else is going to look unrighteous. And how often don't we do that? Do, do I try and vindicate myself by emphasizing other people's faults? I found that's easy to do in a marriage. Easy. When your wife says that thing in you needs to change, then you automatic reflexes. But that thing in your life, that needs to change as well. And you kind of deflect it off yourself. Isn't that true? Anyone done that? Oh, am I the only one? I'm happy to be the only one, but these are, these are true things. Do I take the higher moral ground and play down the plank that is my, in my own eye? Petri sent me a text the other day which was profound. He said, the higher moral ground gives great views, but you can't enjoy them with altitude sickness. <laughs> Isn't that true? We take the higher moral ground and it makes us feel so good about ourselves. But at the same time, there's like we know there's something wrong and it's, you can't even enjoy it anyway. God wants to put a sword through that thing. Do I trust God to vindicate me and adjudicate on my behalf or do I set myself up and enlist others to be my advocate for my cause, whatever it is? The bottom line is, like Adam, I shift the blame in my life. And if we're honest, we all shift the blame for sin away from ourselves onto other things. What did Eve do? She, she claimed extenuating circumstances. She said, she said, okay, no, no, no. It was actually the snake. It was the snake. And we kind of excuse the weight of our sin, the seriousness of our sin, by suggesting that actually if we weren't so stressed, if we had a better job at work, if we didn't have such difficult colleagues... If uh, all these things, extenuating circumstances, we kind of shift things around so actually we don't really address the real thing, which is our sin. It's everybody else's fault that I behave like I behave. And Tim Keller, I was doing, uh, in this book, been reading, he says there are various ways that we cover our sin. We ignore it, we justify it, we excuse it, we indulge in pleasure. We eat and we drink and we watch telly as a way of deafening ourselves to what God is trying to put his finger on. We distract ourselves so that at the end of the day, we just don't face the very thing that God wants us to face. We don't allow him to just put his finger in our hearts. We shop. We, <laughs> we shop to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. If I can just get a bargain from Primark, man, it's all going to go away, isn't it? We criticize others to make ourselves feel better. Or we go and do something good. We volunteer for a charity. I'll do some charity work that will make me feel better about myself. I'm actually a good bloke. And everyone else will see how, what a good bloke I am and tell me, and then I'll feel better. Or some of us get bitter and angry and controlling try and control the thing. We make resolutions that we can't keep. How many of you have done that? <laughs> That's why they call New Year resolutions, because you do it every year. <laughs> I'm discovering this. The, the more I get to know myself, the more I discover the ways that I cover sin in my own life. 
And the more I get to know my own heart, the more I can begin to uncover those sinful things and really get to terms with what is happening inside of me and that only Christ can deal with. Amen? So, David covered his sin. He tried to cover his sin. Well, what is the remedy for that? The remedy for that is a very simple thing, is to confess our sin. That's why I've called this the grace of confession. In verse 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I haven't hidden my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all should say amen to that. God is faithful. If we confess, He forgives. And basically, confession just means to say the same thing as. We, when we confess our sin, it's to say the same thing that God would say about our sin. And we start to see things from His perspective. We agree with Him. And we regard, we we agree with Him regarding the horror of our sin. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge sin personally and and, and see the, the wickedness of your own heart. For me, when you start to see that sin and the impact that that sin has on other people, it is even more painful. It is, it is absolutely painful when you start to see how your own weakness has affected those in your family or those around you. And the, those that you love the most deeply can be most affected by sin that's not dealt with in your own life, in my life. And only God can give us a, a true sense of our sin. This is the beauty. When we confess our sin and uncover our sin in our lives and say, Lord, there it is, and we, we start to, to allow God to see the true state of our sinful hearts, He responds. And does He expose that? No, He covers that. He imputes the righteousness of Christ over our lives, and we are forgiven. That is why confession is such a liberating thing. It's a good news thing. If we could just see it from God's perspective. When I start to say about my life, God, there are some things that only you can deal with. I'm so sorry, Lord. He covers me. When I'm trying to hide that thing and pretend it's not there and don't bring it into the light, I get eaten up from the inside. And all we have to do is say, Lord, here it is, and He covers us with the blood of Jesus. Isn't that good news? That is good news. And what do we need to confess? What do I need to confess or agree with God about and lay our heart bare about? I want to suggest there's a couple of things. The first thing I've discovered, and I want to say to you, my motives. You know the Hollywood fairy tale, just follow your heart and the knight in shining armor will come and save you and all that stuff. Your heart is desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. There's nothing good about your heart. Don't follow your heart. It's desperate. It's evil. It will only get you into trouble. Now that I've said that got off my chest, I feel much better. But it's true. (laughs) There's nothing good about your heart. Don't believe it. The Bible says it's the root of all evil. And so let's just accept that and move on from there. Our motives, the reason that we even do things is sinful. And my actions, the words that proceed from the plans that I've laid up in my heart, and my self-righteousness, my own effort to distort things so that I appear good. 
These are things that we need to be honest about and repent of and say, Lord, those are the fig leaves that we use to cover up sin in our lives. This is the, the very simple heart of what I'm trying to say this morning. When we cover our sin, it dries up intimacy with God. How many of you in your marriages, those of you that are married, fight with each other? What is the first thing that goes when you've had a fight with your husband or your wife? Intimacy. You don't want to be near that person. You want to be as far away from them as possible. That's why one part partner goes to the kitchen and the other one goes upstairs. It doesn't happen in our house, but goes upstairs. You just want to have some space. You don't want to be with the person. Isn't that right? Yes, it is. And so that's why I've tried to say when you're kissing someone, it's very hard to be angry with them. It, it is. It's, so that's what we should do very quickly after we have an argument. is get in each other's faces and give a good hug. It's very hard to be angry. You just don't think I'm serious. Werner, I am serious. Eh? Kerry, next time he rolls a thing, just give him a good kiss. <laughs> when I confess my sin, I allow God to cover me with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Can I say that again? When I confess my sin, I allow God to cover me with the perfect righteousness of Christ. There's some beautiful pictures in the Old Testament. I won't read them all, but Ezekiel 16, verse 4, is a picture in the Old Testament of God covering us with the righteousness of Christ. Zechariah 3, uh, verse 1, says this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to him, who was standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them be, uh, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on, on his head and clothed him with the clean garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. It's this beautiful picture of imputed righteousness that comes from Christ alone. Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. There's this beautiful picture that God covers our sin when we confess it. Amen? So how does God do that? Well, there's this theological word of imputes, imputing. And he imputes our sins to Christ and imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That's why in Psalm 32 it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Or in the New King James it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Impute is an accounting word. It's to change your account with somebody else. That's what it means. And so when I get saved... Or when, 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 we, when you got born again, there's two things that happen simultaneously. There's the new birth, the regeneration. And what does that mean? It means instantly at that moment when we declare and ask Christ for forgiveness, our nature is changed from a carnal one to a spiritual one. Okay? And the governing principle of our lives is no longer the dominion of sin, 
But it's too, we are automatically in that place where the realm of grace and truth and righteousness reign in our lives. That happens. And the, uh, the third kind of picture is that we were aliens and now we are sons, adopted sons of the family of God. So that happens at new birth. And at the same time, there's this justification, which is a change of our legal standing. And you know the old thing that we learned as children. It's God regarding us as sinners that we, as if we had never sinned. So those two things happen simultaneously. There's this legal transaction that happens. Sorry about that, Helen. Legal transaction that happens. There's this change in our nature from carnal to spiritual, and we are adopted as sons. So why do we need to confess our sin then? Well, when we do that at conversion, God makes a once-for-all declaration of our lives that He no longer counts our sin against us. Uh, all that He counts is the righteousness of Christ in His sight on the basis of all that Christ has done in our lives. And we rejoice in that. But after we are born again, when we sin, we don't lose our salvation. We don't lose the fact that we are regenerated. We don't lose the justification that God has imputed to us. But we still need a further cleansing which we receive as we confess our sins. There's this ongoing sense that God imputes righteousness and we are cleansed from our sin. And I want to say over this last year, there's been a, a growing sense in my own heart personally and in the life of this church that there are some things that God is changing and God is changing them as we confess some things to Him. He's breathing new life. That's what it is to learn to walk by the Spirit. I remember last year when we came back from our holiday in Greece, I felt, I came back and I said to you guys in the church that God was saying we need to walk increasingly by the Spirit. And that's, that's resulted in a whole lot of decisions being made in the life of the church. And God has been faithfully showing us things that we have needed to repent of so that He can bring freedom to us. And for me, that's what it's about. Repentance and confession are so that God can bring freedom to us. And He does that individually, and He does that corporately as we walk with Him. And there's great freedom that comes as we allow the blood of Jesus to cover us. And I want to talk through some things with you over the next couple of months, but I just want to kind of mention some things that have become very real to me this year and that I have needed to repent of. The first thing is this, of needing to repent of a man-centered theology and fully embrace a God-centered theology. Okay, now, just because I'm talking about theology, please don't switch off, all right? Because how we perceive God and what we see in our hearts directly affects how we live and move and have our being. How we perceive God, what we perceive Him in our theology, our understanding of Him directly impacts our lives in a profound way. Another way of saying that is moving from our will to the sovereign God who wills everything. That's another way of saying what I've just said. And I think it will be great over the next while to have a look at Romans and some of the great chapters that talk about these things, maybe Romans chapter 8. And why is it such a fundamental thing for us to be rooted in personally and as a church? Well, it's simply this. And this is what I've been discovering in my own life over this last year. When we are grounded in that, when we are absolutely rooted in that in our lives personally, we can fully enter what the Bible describes as the rest of God. The Sabbath rest of God. You've read that in Hebrews. And all that means is that we rest from our work. We rest from our labor. 
We rest from things that are really motivated by insecurity or fear of failure or fear of poverty or fear of whatever. We rest from those things because of what Christ has done for us. And when we do that, we begin to see and approach the Scripture and what we read in the Scripture through a pure lens. And when we do that, it changes everything. It changes everything. That's the first thing I want to say, and we'll look at that as we go on in the next couple of months. But secondly, I've had to repent, and I'm trying still to allow God to do this at a deeper level, repenting of just preaching the how-tos. Yes? How to have a successful marriage. Who wants a successful marriage? Well, he has the five steps, ten steps, fifteen steps to a successful marriage. How, how to manage your finances biblically. Well, let me tell you about that. The how-tos, the how-tos, the how-tos. And rather come to a point of looking for Christ in Scripture wherever I can find Him. When we find Christ in Scripture, the how-tos will fall into place. But it's a different emphasis. That's why we've been saying over the last while, you want a great marriage? Love Jesus with all of your heart. Love Him passionately, and you will have a great marriage. And you might say, well, that's very subtle, very simple. It might be. But we have to be those that are pointing people to Christ. Ourselves, pointing our own life to Christ. And as we begin to live for Jesus, life begins to flow from the inside out, rather than being legislated from the outside in. And that is a profound motivation That is a profound difference which will enable us just to rest in what Christ has done, to live our lives and to be fruitful in our lives without trying to G up all the time. Are you with me? And I think it's a subtle trap into which all of us can fall. For all of us, it's more comfortable just to follow the rules, isn't it? Just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. But God is saying, no, no, it's a walk by the Spirit. I'll tell you what to do, but you've got to listen day by day. Perhaps what I'm trying to say is we're moving away from principles to just the door to all things. And the door to all things is Christ. Okay. Thirdly, and I'm nearly finished. Coming back to my first love. It really is all about Jesus, isn't it? All of this is about Christ. And that we can come boldly as sons and daughters into His presence Because we are all basically, we are all sinners saved by grace. And so we come and approach the throne of Christ. And it's been important to see that grace and faith are not things that are intention. Both are gifts from God, mercy gifts of God. Faith is given by God. It's our response to the cross, to seeing what Christ has done. It's our response to the punishment that Jesus has taken on our behalf. And fully understanding the the extent that he's forgiven us. And we want to embark in that place, just rest in that place, take up our cross daily and walk with Christ. So what is the result of all that? Well, as those things are being birthed in us, then simple things start to happen. There's a restored fellowship by the power of the Holy Spirit, first with God and then with each other. Isn't that true? There's a, many consequences that flow out of a life of intimacy and a growing passion of, with Christ. And some of those things do include the way that we serve. And we serve in diverse ways in the church. And that includes the things that we've always done, like planting churches and going to the nations. But I feel like we've become so engrossed on the mission, the result, that we, we have started to think that the consequence of our salvation is the mission, the thing that God has called us to do. 
and it ain't. Coming back to this place of just living in a sweet place of communion with God, if we don't do that, we short-circuit the grace of God in our lives, we stop to abide in Him, we stop to have fellowship with Him, and we create in our own lives this self-generating uh, restlessness. There's a kind of we can never feel settled, never have peace, never. We always like oh, yeah, oh, just go. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus said to Mary and Martha. He said what? He said Martha, what you're doing is good, but Mary, she's chosen what is best. Just come and sit at my feet. I feel like that's what God is doing with us as a church, and certainly in my life. He's doing that thing. Jesus is the commissioner of all things. He also is the constructor of all things. He's the architect. He's the builder. I was chatting to Nick the other day, and he said this to me. He said, unless we throw off that thing that Wesley said, and I come from a Methodist background, what Wesley's cry was this. If the world does not your parish, then your parish becomes the world. And it seems like it is a noble cry in some ways. But it is that thing of God, I've got to do a whole lot of stuff. And I think God is just saying, no, I want you to come and sit at my feet. And when you sit at my feet and you get to know me, other stuff will automatically flow out of you. You won't have to jeer it up. You won't get exhausted doing it. Just come and sit at my feet. So I want to say this. I think we've labored under that. Helen and I have labored under that. In our lives, and unfortunately, I have to repent and say that sometimes I've put other people under the same yoke. But putting Jesus at the center doesn't eliminate the mission, but it makes the mission the overflow of this wonderful romance that we have with Christ. It's the overflow, it's just the automatic result of intimacy is that we get to partner and do some stuff together. That's it, it's a completely different motivation. You still with me? Last point. In addition to these things I've, I've tried to describe to you this morning, I, I have to say personally that I'm, I'm having to give myself to try and reclaim some ground in my own life in terms of my own personal study and prayer. And that's simply because over the last years, I've felt a growing bluntness in my life, a growing bluntness in my own ministry, in, in what, what we've been called to do, trying to be so many things to different people, all that we've been involved with historically in terms of travel and all those things, and the time has come for me personally at a, at a basic level to dig my well. <laughs> and so I'm putting aside chunks of time just to read and to study and to pray and to try and hear God because we can't go into the future without having a well that is deep, all of us. And so I'm saying that as a, a confession I'm saying that that's what I am going to give myself to more and more in the next coming months. It's just giving myself to some reading and study without feeling guilty. You see? <laughs> because the thing of that thing on your back is that when you do read and pray and study, you feel guilty. It's like, oh God, I'm getting a salary from this church. I better do some stuff. What can I do? How many songs can I write? How many churches can we plant? How many home cells can we have? Give myself all my energy to those things. And actually, no, no, well, actually, maybe it's also just God saying, you, my son, come sit with me. And when you sit with me, I will speak to you. And when I speak to you, a whole lot of stuff's going to happen. Amen. Amen. So having said that, at the same time, 
you're trying to navigate the church from a rocky place that she's drifted towards. And some of that stuff has been us working out past harvests of some of the things that we've sown that have not been wise. But there's also been the sifting and discipline of God, and there's also been the sinfulness of people. And all those things have been mixed up in this last period. But for me, it's incredibly exciting to know that God has a future for us. God has a fruitful future for all of us. And some of the things have been hard and painful, but it's been worth it. You know, it's been absolutely worth it. Do I want the last three years again? No, I do not want them again. But they've been worth it because God has been pruning and God has been cutting back so that we can be fruitful into the future. And I see everywhere I look, there, there is signs of life and God is the rising tide of the Holy Spirit. So, my friends, all I'm trying to do is encourage you this morning. Whatever God has put his finger on in your life, whatever it is, and for all of us, I'm certain this year, there are different things that God is putting his finger on. Don't try and deflect away from that. Don't try and make it less than it is. Don't try and cover it up. And I want to say this, that there are Nathans that God is using in our lives to just point some things out and say, Glenn, that thing has to change. I'm picking on Glenn because I can see him. I can't see anyone else. (laughs) All right? That thing has to change. Why? Because God wants intimacy from us. God wants close relationship. And as we confess it to him, we allow him to cover it with the blood of Jesus. And that produces freedom. That produces intimacy. And that's what we're longing for for every single family of this church community is a passionate relationship with Jesus. A passionate relationship that's motivated from the inside out, that is infectious, that your friends are automatically going to see, your colleagues are automatically going to see, and it's going to be attractive to those that are lost and broken, and we're going to see many saved. That's what we are longing for. That's what God is going to do. Amen. So can I just pray for you, and then I'm going to ask the, we're going to go out and just enjoy family time over some coffee and if you are visiting we really like would lo- love to to, uh, v- to meet you so please um, stay for some coffee afterwards alright can we pray Father I thank you for this amazing story of David and uh, Bathsheba I thank you Lord that your challenge to all of us is that we would not be those that cover our sin but we will be those that confess our sin so that you can bring us freedom and liberty. And Lord, I pray for every single person in this auditorium. Lord, I know this with absolute certainty that this last year you have been doing deep things in the life of this church, in the life of every single family. You've been challenging us all about where our, our identity is. Where is our security? Is it really in you? And Father, I pray that this morning we would, be, we would respond and not try and deflect anything away, but we would let the sword of God go through our own hearts. That we would let you put to death some things in us by the power of your Spirit. Not what other people are saying that need to change, but those things that you are saying, that we know you are saying to us. Those things. Lord, we want to bring those things to you this morning. And I pray, Lord, the result of that would be an increased liberty, an increased intimacy, an increased freedom in the life of the church in every way as we start to see rivers of living water flowing from the inside out. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning as a community of believers, that truly 
our love for you would transform those that we come into contact with as we simply speak of the, the gospel in our own lives, what you're doing in our own lives, how you're changing us. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much. Uh,